This week on Dig Me Out, part one of Tim and Jay's interview with special guest Alan Johannes of Eleven. In this episode, Tim and Jay review the history of the band and Alan's 30-year career in the music industry. Hello and welcome to another episode of Dig Me Out. I'm your host, Tim Minichi, and joining me once again, my co-host, Mr. Jason Ziak. Jay. What's up? Not much. Uh, <laughs> we've got a special guest uh, joining us tonight, and um, we have a we have a bet to settle. So I'm I'm interested to uh, to talk to our special guest. I would list every band he's been in, but that might be a half hour or so of explaining all the various bands that he's played in, or recorded, or produced. So let's just say from the band Eleven, Mister. Alan Johannes. Hi. How are you doing? What's up? I'm good. Thank you very much. And that was I'm a tired very... from that. It, what you just described sounds really tiring. So I'm already tired. <laughs> You're not as tired as, lo- as we were reading through all the various websites trying to compile some sort of comprehensive history. Hey. Wikipedia only does you so much justice, but we had to uh, dig even deeper. So we could probably just oh, do an cool, entire yeah. episode just on uh, your uh production and recording and uh, playing history, but um, that might get a little tedious after a while. So we would like to just focus. We're going to review the album. Well, it's a self-titled album from 1993-11, which leads me into our first question before we get into the history of the band. Jay and I want to know, was the name of the band named after Nigel Tufnell's amp from Spinal Tap? Now, keep in mind, we have money writing on this. (laughs) Uh, okay, well, it, it, it kind of, uh, well, obviously, we hadn't formed by the time we saw the movie, you know, because we saw it when it first came out. Okay. Mm-hmm. But uh, the actual significance of the number, there's a, there's a thing that happens to some people where every time they look at the clock, it's 11-11. And uh, that started happening to Natasha and I, like, you know, 11-11, okay, now it's 11-11. I could just be, you know, clunky dink or... or you just tune yourself to like look at, at the thing but then other weird stuff like the phone number started to add up to 11 and then the address was added to 11 and then blah, blah, blah. and then eventually uh after like i think it was during evan guard dog which is our fourth record we got a very cryptic thing in the mail saying hey we're the 11 11 society and yeah, obviously, you guys know about the number. It's like a trigger for the next uh, uh, consciousness jump in humanity. And we're having a party on top of a hill somewhere in Eastern Europe. Would you play it? <laughs> okay. And then, they, and then they sent us a book, the 11-11 something, and, which I didn't read. But, um, so you unwittingly tapped into this numerology type thing. Yeah, just just uh, surely by by the the act of uh, looking at the clock, you know, twice a day, exactly eleven eleven. But but uh, having said that, you know, Natasha passed away at eleven eleven, and that's very hard to time your death, and that's really weird. So yeah, I had read that. I was wondering if uh, that was true. It was just so true. Wow. Um, eleven in the morning and and eleven minutes. Wow. And. Uh, I don't know. It's 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 one of those things. I mean, I always picture it like two one. So uh, it's two 
it's it's one number, but it's two individual things that make up the number. Like, and obviously, like a, a, a straight stick looks like a person without the head and the arms and the legs. So the two of us were kind of joined at the hip, you know. So it made sense. Oh, and yeah. it was an easy, uh, you know, it, it rolled off the tongue really well. Of course, since then, there's like 900 other 11s, and, you know, it's like I gave up even trying to care. Right, right. About, you know, going, hey, don't, okay, fine, do it. Who cares? Well, but except when, like, we get credited, or somebody says, oh, I don't know about that weird, uh, that new hip-hop track those guys did. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Are you kidding me? It's obviously not a... <laughs> yeah, on Spotify, there's quite a, f- a few artists that get mixed in there when you uh, when you choose you guys. Well, we were the first. Yep. Um, actually, Nigel Tufnell was the first. <laughs> so Jay, you lose yeah. the bat. Oh, you know, even... when, when I saw when I saw that movie in the theater, yeah, it just came out, and I swear to God, half the people in the audience didn't think realize it was a comedy. <laughs> <laughs> I've heard that. Yeah, I they were I've... sitting there going, "This dance." Not, that's just weird. Yeah. There's still people now that don't think it's a comedy. Yeah, there's. That's true. (laughs) Yeah. Well, it's only uh, it's only extremely brilliant and informs a lot of things. It's actually actually quite sad too. You know, like arguing about the marquee with a puppet show and all that. Um, (laughs) It's so true. I've, I've had. Well, you know, now it's part of the vernacular. Oh, I had a spinal tap moment, you know, which yeah. means, you know, socially embarrassing, awkward, weird. Like, you have to, you have to, you know, sustain your, like, imaginary self-worth in the midst of some situation where you're just totally degraded, downgraded, and you're like, yeah, oh, okay. It's pretty <laughs> funny, actually. I love it. Yeah. Uh, so yeah. let's do a... Uh, let's do a... Brief history of eleven, so Impossible. we can catch. Well, it's. I'm gonna try. I'm gonna try to squeeze all this information in. History of the band. So, eleven actually goes back to the '80s, uh, even though it was formed yeah. technically in '90. Uh, uh, began in Los Angeles yeah. with uh, you and Jack Irons playing yes. as teenagers and forming a band called. Anthem with one yes. Flea and Halil Slovak. Yes, and it was Anthem with an E originally, but then we made like a shit ton of buttons, like 2,000 of them, really fancy ones. Uh, and then suddenly there was a band called Anthem uh, right over the hill in the valley, and we lived in Hollywood. And we were like, you're kidding. And they were older than us, and they had like more gear and a bigger van and more gigs. So instead of like, you know, Saying okay, that there goes all that hard-earned Baskin Robbins uh, money, because <laughs> uh, that's where I used to work. Um, <laughs> and so what we did is we we we, we uh, very uh, aggressively uh, crossed out the E and put a Y in there, and every single button by hand, and, and then then we gave those away. So nice. we we became Anthem with a Y. That's Was there any sort of rumble between the two bands? <laughs> No, they were they were totally they were just in a whole other. But by that point, I think we've morphed into like a Beefheart, Captain Beefheart meets Rush kind of mode at the moment. Mm. Before we heard Gang of Four, and then it changed a bunch of other stuff too, and King Crimson. Um, so they were kind of more like, a, well, as the name suggests, Anthem. You know, lots of uh, 
I don't know, lots of uh, part one, two, and threes of every song. Uh, you know, f- like Final Rush. Termination 3, a new, be- a new Beginning, that kind of thing. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah. Anthem turns into What Is This? And then Flea Leaves, yes. Flea leaves to form Chili name. Peppers. Yeah, well, it, it, it's, it's hard to Google. I'll tell you that. <laughs> yeah, there's no question mark, by the way. We're trying to make a statement with a question, which is... That Yeah, so so we had Flea, Hello, Jack, and I. Um, we were the ones that start, you know, kind of started. Flea didn't actually play with us yet, not till high school, because he played trumpet. And uh, when our original bass player, Todd Strassman, decided to concentrate on his studies, uh, and he quit, then we kind of uh, told Flea that well, we didn't really give him a choice. We said, you're, you're going to be our bass player, and you're going to come over to my house in the next three months because we got a battle of the bands at Gazzari's which is now the key club on Sunset you know mm-hmm. and so we did that and then we came in second but not because we weren't better the uh, Loosely Tight was the band that won and they brought their own fans and two Greyhound buses from Long Beach it was really unfair so, so so the Clapometer uh, favored them they rigged it yeah, they totally rigged it. That's but the, we clearly were the superior, superior outfit, for, I mean, for sure. That's the oldest Battle of the Bands trick in the world. Yeah. I know, right? Bring your own fans <laughs> right. and, and Greyhound buses. Yeah, yeah. It's a big popularity well, contest. Yeah. So we became what it is, and then we met Anthony in high school, and uh, he became kind of our MC thing. Uh, always, you know, we'd go to gigs, and, and he made sure the power cord didn't get unplugged because we would run it from where we were playing at, at lunchtime in high schools. Um, and uh, he protected so we could play one extra song when the bell went off. That's awesome. <laughs> <laughs> it seems like your roadie slash security. Yeah, he wasn't really a roadie. He was just, he was too steadily for that. He was just kind of, he'd get up on stage and introduce us and already had great stage presence. In and then he'd make sure no one unplugged the power so we could play that extra song. God. Oh, he's your hype man. Okay, I get it. Yeah, yeah, and then uh, um, what happened with the with the Peppers were born? Well, Flea uh, left. What is it? And he joined Fear for a year, um, 
And then uh, we got another bass player. And then in the meantime, a friend of ours was a performance artist named Gary Allen. He, he asked uh, uh, Anthony and Flea to come up with something, you know? And they conceptualized the Peppers like overnight. And then with Halal and Jack, they, uh, they debuted over at the Grandy Room on, Mel on Melrose and uh, played two songs. And it was awesome, and people loved it straight away. So then we had this uh, this very uh, difficult situation where we had, you know, six people in two four-piece bands, so we had to just book the shows and play together, do whatever we could. And then when we both got offered record deals um, in 82, Hello and Jack stayed with me, and we had a new bass player named Chris Hutchinson, and then uh, Flea and Anthony got Jack Sherman and Cliff Martinez for the first record. Wow. And that, and then, that uh, yeah. release was called Squeezed? Yeah, that's Squeezed. Okay. That's Dave Jordan, one of the early Dave Jordan. He just came off of uh, Disco Duck and Herbie Hancock's Rocket. Which is a and, uh, yeah. quite a background. Yes. That's a true uh, resume there. Well, I mean, and of course, then he went on to Chains and Alice in Chains and all our awesome stuff, too. Yeah. Right. So we all get a start somewhere. Yeah. So I'm then... Sure Disco Duck is not in his Wikipedia credit. No, I don't <laughs> think... I didn't see that one when I was uh, when I was researching. So, okay. We're caught up to the band sort of paralleling and, and going their separate paths. Yeah, so... So now that brings us to the second record, the long record, uh, Todd Rundgren produced. And by this time, I'd already met Natasha. And meeting Natasha was very crazy because I had a dream I was going to meet her uh, the night before I met her. And, th and not that I was just going to meet somebody, but I was going to meet somebody named Natasha. <laughs> and then she walked into and she walked into my house with our high school manager who was now working at a and Records. We'd, we'd seen her on uh, Entertainment Tonight being interviewed about her role in 2010. And the whole time she's talking about music, so he was a daughter in, and then she said, "I want to, you know, meet somebody to collaborate with." And then so she she joined. Um, so okay, let me go back. Uh, the Todd Rundgren record were over there, and uh, hello, I can tell he's fancy. I know he he wants to get back to the Peppers, so he finishes his tracks, he quits the band, he goes back, rejoins the Peppers. Then Natasha and I, uh, I mean, uh, uh, I mean, she joins. What is this? Yeah, with with uh, Rob Hotchkiss was playing guitar with us, who was in Train, hmm. and because we wanted the fuller sound, and she was playing keyboards, and Jack was there, and Chris Hutchinson, and we did our the what would have been the third what is this record with Dave Jordan, but in the middle of that, uh, Jack quit and went back to the Peppers. So then Natasha and I finished that record just on our on our own, and we kind of changed the uh, the vibe a little bit, started using. Well, Jack was gone, and I could never replace Jack because he's that kind of a drummer, so genetically fused to me. Um, he started using drum machines, hmm. and that became Walk the Moon. Missing. 
one record came out and the second one never came out. And then uh, Halal passed away while we were making our second record. <clears throat> and Jack, you know, took it really badly, actually, over there, but he freaked out and he quit the Peppers. And then, uh, then we formed Eleven with just Jack, and T- Natasha, and I in 1990. And then, so the first album, which is called Awaken a Dream, that yes. comes out in 91 on Morgan Creek. Yes. Oh, my God. What a nightmare that was. <laughs> okay. Well, I mean, we didn't, we didn't sound like that live. It's just we, worked, we chose E.T. Farnsworth. We, cho- we chose him. It's, it's not anyone's fault. And uh, he's a very talented guy, but, but his head was in a different place. He'd done all the Robert Palmer stuff, you know. Oh, okay. And... And I liked it because it, it was uh, it was aggressive enough and really well put together, but it was just wrong, you know, for for us, and, and we, we didn't capture what we were. So, you know, the backlash became eleven eleven, where it was pretty much just a live record, very heavy and dark, and that's what we usually sounded like. And that album comes out on Hollywood. Uh, records in yes. 1993, followed by Thunk, same label in 1995. But yes. during the recording, I understand uh, Jack left to join Pearl Jam, and you yes, brought in. Yeah, believe me, that 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 uh, <laughs> uh, can I swear? Can I swear in a blog? You can swear. Okay, that uh, uh, Rotter. Okay, there's one. It's not terrible. <laughs> <laughs> I love him. No, he keeps. He keeps leaving. It's like, are you kidding me? All right, fine. But but I but I told him before that record. I I go, dude. Okay, what happened was this: is that Eddie Vedder was a, a friend of ours, especially Jack's friend. And when Mother Love Bone, uh, you know, when Andy died, and and they, they wanted Jack to play drums with the new whatever was coming, what was going to come next. Mm-hmm. And he said, no, I've got this band called Eleven, and and uh, but my friend Eddie's a great singer. And so he sent Eddie up to Seattle, and he, the same, first day he arrived, I believe the first day he arrived, he, he went over to the Temple of the Dog Sessions and started singing straight away. So, you know, um, Hunger Strike and all that. Right, right. So I always knew that, uh, that Eddie was going to, you know, want to get Jack in his band. And uh, by that time, we were already toured with Pearl Jam, and we become friends, and Tasha and I became good friends with Dave Abrazis, and... You know, we're sitting there recording Thunk, and Jack's really rushing through his takes and stuff, and I just get, I got that feeling, even though I said, look, why don't you just call Eddie now before we start this record, because I don't want to make this record with you and have you be such an integral part of the sound. Give us a chance to find somebody that could compliment us as well. Mm-hmm. He goes, no, I would never do that. I can't do it with it. And then suddenly all these messages uh, at the studio from Captain Crunch, Captain Crunch calling for Jack. I was like, Captain Crunch? Oh, God. (laughs) (laughs) Eddie was, like, planning. Yeah. Anyway, so so he finished his last drum take, and then suddenly the drums are getting packed. I I went, oh, dude, no, please. He goes, I'm sorry, man. I didn't. I wanted to make this right. I didn't know what I was going to do. I was like, okay, whatever. We've been friends since we were 13. What what am I going to do? Yeah. And so off he went to uh, to Pearl Jam. And so what we did is we took four songs off, which became the funk B-sides, which were really awesome songs, and uh, invited Matt Cameron to come, and, and, and that's how we did 
you know, replace those with, with the format Cameron tracks and fun. Cameron's on four in, four songs on that album? Yeah, yeah, he's on uh, Why, mm-hmm. uh, No Ground, Big Sleep, and Seasick of You. No need to choke that which needs to bleed. We're just planting the seed. We're just holding up fans. We're set adrift by the things that you do. What you're thinking ain't good. You're just wasting my Now, was was Soundgarden still together at this point? Had they they had just put out um, Super Unknown, right? They hadn't put out Down on the Upside, so no, 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 exactly. Yeah, we met. We met. Okay. Uh, what was funny is that they were listening. We're at a truck stop in in uh, somewhere in California, and we suddenly saw another bus there, and, I, and 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 then I saw Cam walk into the bus, you know, and I hadn't met them yet, but we were all we were listening to was like Louder in Love and Bad Motorfinger. And I walked into their bus, and they were listening to "Awaken a Dream," which is really weird. But <clears throat> so we all met at that point, and then they invited us to uh, to play a couple shows uh, with them in California, and that's how we became really close friends. And then we toured together when we, you know with Greg, when Greg joined the band um, in the Down the Upside tour. There's a bit of a break there from 2000 or 1995 to 2000. Um, you start to do some producing work and some and some recording with other artists such as Jason Faulkner and as you mentioned Chris Cornell uh, from Soundgarden. Um, yeah. What, well, what, what led actually, you to what, what, do that? Well, what happened was that after Hollywood, which is really difficult, you know, because they, they they would basically print up, you know, whatever twenty five thousand copies. It would sell pretty quickly, and then and then they would, you know, they just wouldn't do anymore with it you know it's frustrating okay. um we always look good on a label that they would be able to attract people uh because you know we, we we started getting this uh reputation that we were really you know artistically uh, very uncompromising and therefore if a label would put up with us and there must be a cool label for other bands and so we ended up getting stuck in a bunch of situations where they would keep us going just enough to keep going because they could attract other bands, you know, mm-hmm. which is kind of a bummer. And so we leave, uh, we're not on Hollywood anymore, and, and we get a call from Soundgarden to go on tour, and now we have no label, we have no money, and and Chris goes, okay, I'll call you right back, and he called everyone in the band, and then he calls back, and he goes, okay, each one of us put in 15 grand, you guys are coming. Wow. I don't think that's ever happened Whoa. before that a band, you know, put up 60 grand to have their buddies come out and open up. So that paid for, you know, obviously, uh, you know, one, one man crew, um, you know, the flights, uh, taking care of everything for several months. We, we opened up for them in Europe. It was really sweet and amazing. What year was that? That was a down on the upside to it. It must have been 95 and 96, right? Okay. Yeah. Yeah. 
Yeah. That's amazing. Uh, yeah. And so then we get a call from Chris that, you know, you know, the band's broken up. And can he come and, and uh, hang out with us to decompress? So he stayed with us for a bit. And uh, in, in, in that time, Al Kafara was the president of A&M, and they were on A&M, and he brought him over. And Natasha and I had been recording some demos on a little tiny A-track. And Chris made Al Kafara listen to it, and Al Kafara offered us a record deal. So we get signed to A&M, and now we have like a $200,000 budget, which is, you know, this day would be insanely huge. But back then it was kind of average. Mm-hmm. Um, and so Natasha and I have the balls to walk into his office to go, yeah, so we got this budget, and I know, you know, we're supposed to talk about producers and engineers, but how about this? Why don't you give us the $200,000, and we'll buy a studio for the house, <laughs> and we'll make the record like that. Yeah. And then we just waited for a second, and he, and he just looked at us. I like it. I like it. That's a good idea. Wow. Yeah, fuck yeah, let's do it. And then we were, we were so shocked. I said, are you kidding me? Oh, really? We had no expectation that it was going to go down, but we figured we'd try Good for you guys. So, yeah, yeah, right. So that's awesome. So we get, so I go to a local music store and just start buying like a whole, whole studio and got the boxes home on Wednesday and by Thursday, I mean I didn't sleep all night. I wired it all up and we started recording Avant Garde Dog, which came out in 2000, but this is 97 or end of 96. So we finished that record and then Chris. Um, we, we helped him uh, demo and arrange a bunch of before in morning beforehand, and we've written some stuff for it too. And he was supposed to work with Daniel Lanois on the record. And like three days before he was supposed to start, Daniel Lanois like canceled, like pulled out, you know, mm. for unknown reasons. And so Natasha was like, dude, well, let's just do it here. Let's just do it. And he, and he said, Okay, let's do it. <laughs> and we started recording, and we did we did Euphoria Morning here at the house over a period of seven months, you know, on and off, and 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 giant secret, no one knew till we were done with it. Before morning was done, Evan Gardog was ready to go, but everyone decided, you know, everyone's, you know, they asked us, they said, well, basically, you know, we can't do both, and we would love for you to be in, in Chris's band, so why don't you put off Evan Gardog till later, till after the Before Morning cycle, so that's exactly what we did. And at the end of Before Morning, um, basically A&M, uh, got absorbed into because of a sale, and everybody got fired, and it ended. And M was over, except as a just as a little imprint, you know, yep. as part of the Interscope group. And so we ended up having to wait almost a, a year and a half after that to 
see whether they were going to release the album or not. And then they did in a very haphazard way, in a very mildly put it out. So that album actually took like three years to come out. The, it was done before Euphoria Morning, which very few people know. So it didn't like take three years to record it and you didn't spend all the time in the studio. It wasn't some big long project. You actually had it done and it just kind of sat until you were waiting for the label to... Yes, exactly. To do it. It, was, it, was completely, okay. it was completely finished before we started Euphoria Morning. Yeah, and then after that, uh, you know, we were just like, okay, we can't deal with labels anymore. You know, we had the studio at the house, and we just did Howling Book on our own. And then, of course, we didn't have the finances to, uh, you know, we, we kept working. I, I um, you know, we worked with the band live. Uh, I engineered No Doubts, Return of Saturn, and some stuff from the Rocksteady. And we just kept, you know, uh, alive with that. Just waiting for a little opportunity to uh, to be able to take time to make a Howling Book, which only only took like you know six weeks to do it. So then you know we did that, and then it, I think we finally put it out in 2003. And uh, oh, so, oh yeah, by that time, uh, for a moment there, well, we we're still in Interscope, so it was Queens, and that's that's when we met. Um, the Queens guys. You know, I was going to ask we, that. Yeah, where that relationship started. Well, we 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 uh, um, we met Josh before when we were on tour with Chris. Uh, he was in Screaming Trees at the time, and Hutch, the sound guy uh, for the Trees and Queens and the Vultures, you know, I've known him since the '80s. You know, so we ran into each other at the airport line, getting on the same plane, and that's when I met Josh for the first time. But it was very brief, and then. Uh, 11 opened up for Queens right in the very first little uh, West Coast run that uh, uh, Queens did for Rated R. Okay. And that's what, yeah, and that's when we became friends. And, and as soon as that, that tour was over and they were back, he asked uh, he asked me to record um, their B-sides and stuff for that the cycle. Mm-hmm. And then we got in the touch and I got invited to the Desert Sessions because we already had become friends. We started hanging out like every day. Mm-hmm. So seven and eight, we went over to Rancho, and I rode Hanging Tree and, and making a cross, you know, in the morning, the same, you know, just like twenty minutes. It just it's very inspirational over there. And that's when I met Lanigan, 
because he sang Hanging Tree in the Desert Sessions version. And then on Death, you know, we just came in as needed, like, you know, played like theremin and wood stuff and Sasha played keys and she was, uh, you know, the crazy dominatrix voice and I was a Mexican DJ and, you know, <laughs> you know, get, you know <laughs> okay, yeah. that's who did that. Yeah, yeah, that was me. <laughs> that's hilarious yeah Those and, uh, fun. yeah they're just uh, i had a great time with that one and mm-hmm. then you know then then the partnership began you know for for lullabies i played bass and guitar and then Arable Garris i recorded and mixed and played too um then you know we did another desert sessions in there that's when i met pj harvey and it's been uh, oh, and we did the Eagles of Death Metal records here at the house the first two as well. Oh, very cool. See this? I mean, we could just do an entire episode just on. <laughs> and Tim, Tim, and I thought we had everything, and there's already a million things you've mentioned that we didn't even know. So, right. Um, this is way better than Wikipedia. Yeah, this is. <laughs> Wikipedia is going to actually have to listen to this and then tape it all in. Yeah, I mean, to... yeah, it's it's funny, but 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 you know, it's like. I, I wish I kind of time. I kind of feel weird, like go on there and like change things, you know, unless something is blatantly wrong. But uh, I don't know. I think it's meant for, to be for everyone to chime in a little bit and stuff. But there's some things people don't know. But some of the stuff is is pretty. Yeah, I mean, it's, you know, it's very factual, and a bunch of people are involved. So you got to wonder, you know, how to get it all together. Maybe one one of these days I'll get on there and and see what I can. Uh, uh, romanticize. <laughs> <laughs> in terms of releases there was uh, a couple things last year that came out um, there was the EP uh, that came out actually in 11 11 11 I believe yeah that's, uh, this, uh, this little, little finger, finger. Yeah. yeah and then um there was also a release called "The Last Man in the World." That was by Year Eleven, right? Not one of one of the other Elevens. Yeah, that's one one of the other Elevens. Yeah. Okay. Because 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 I'm I'm trying to put together rarities. Uh, you know, it was supposed to be done by Eleven Eleven Eleven, but I was waiting to try to find this tape machine that A Track had mentioned earlier uh, that was working, and 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 then finally when I did, I realized that. We didn't have all the tracks on the eight track because what we did back then, just to save tracks, was uh, you know all Natasha's keys were played directly into an early mini sequencer, hmm. which is you know for all intents and purposes like a recorder because there was no like um, no Pro Tools and no grid or whatever, no click. So, but when I when I finally got you know to try to transfer all this stuff, all I had was drums. Uh, guitar and their vocals and my dream of like remixing it quote unquote properly were just uh, vanished you know mm-hmm. so all I have is a bunch of transfers I did from a dad that was kind of glitchy and noisy but it'll have to do you know it's more important to document that's some like 14 songs you know mm-hmm. and then the other thing is is uh, a, a week before Natasha got diagnosed we had a session over here in 2007 with Jack and Tasha and I uh, tracking five songs in one day, and they're ri- some of our most intensely live and rocking stuff, you know. And I, I'm sitting on that right now. I don't, I'm not really sure because we would have, uh, we didn't, we never got to the melody and lyrics, and we would have done those together. So 
one of my ideas was to give the music to some of our friends, you know, hmm. and uh, let them do, finish it. And then cool. put that out as a, as a five-song EP. Some really great stuff. The playing was insane. Our chemistry was, was so good. We actually never sounded better. You know, this is after the, you know, long cycle of, like, you know, being involved in Queens and other stuff. Right. The other thing I wanted to mention was the, the solo album that came out, Spark. Mm-hmm. Spark, um, yeah. Can you talk a little bit about what it's a, it's a big departure from sonically at least from what you're doing with Eleven and and your time in playing with Queens and them Cricket Vultures which we haven't even gotten to yet. Um, but right. can you just talk about the genesis sort of behind that album? Well, I mean, the first song I wrote. Uh, well, I have I've had this uh, cigar box for years. I used to this, the actual cigar box guitar, the actual cigar box. Uh, my friend Maddie makes them the cold sick fiddles. The actual cigar box used to sit on top of Natasha's piano. And whenever she played piano, it would just jump around everywhere. You know, just I noticed how rich, uh, what a great resonating piece of wood it was. So, you know, my friend Maddie made a cigar box out of it, a uh, guitar out of it. And uh, I had that for a few years. And uh, I wrote Endless Eyes when we did the tribute show for Natasha. And I played it at the end of the show, like in a in a very kind of uh, whispery, falsetto voice. You know, it was, it was very hard, difficult, beautiful night. Um, had everybody, you know, come out and play, and you know, P.J. Harvey, Matt Cameron, uh, Jesse, all the Queens guys, you know, D.O.C., like um, Tenacious D. And it was a really beautiful, special night, and uh, and Brody too. Um, so now I had the cigar box, and after that, I was just like kind of the. Um, I don't even remember much of it because I was, it was so in shock and grief stricken because Natasha and I have been together, you know, 24 years or something, 25 years. Mm. And we were so joined at the hip. So Josh immediately like brought me into uh, when the vultures started. He brought me into um, record vocals and guitars and. And I would attract a few songs uh, by myself. You know, Alan Mulder did most of it, but he went off to do Wolf Mother and, and I came in and recorded. And then after the album was done, he just, uh, the older guys invited me to become the uh, the fifth wheel on the tricycle. I <laughs> 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 joined, uh, joined the Bad Live, you know, mm-hmm. playing bass and keys and guitar and harmonies. So I had my cigar box on tour, and in that touring period, I just started writing, all these songs started coming, you know, for Natasha. You know, songs to deal with uh, what I was going through, and also to to show my love and, play, uh, and, and you know, pay homage. And, and I found a little five-day window off from tour before going back out again. I think it was between European and American tours, and I just... Got a couple of bottles of vodka and my cello and my harmonium and my cigar box and toms and percussion and my fretless Hebo guitar. And I just went into my control room and did the whole record in basically four and a half, maybe five days. Wow. That's and crazy. then I had, yeah, then I had it, you know, it was, it was complete and that's only half an hour, but, but it's, it's just like the whole, it all flows, you know, it was recorded all in sequence except for Spider, which is the last thing I recorded after 
exactly what the lyric says happened. I went to her grave and we used to call her Spider. She's the spider on the cover of 1111. And I'm the, I'm the turtle and Jack said, well, kind of like our totem animals. Um, and this little the spider jumped onto onto my hand you know, as I was touching the, uh, the stone and it just ran up my arm, across my face, across my lips, back down the other arm, then, and then went straight up uh, the headstone, um, which has a beautiful uh, photo of Natasha, like in black and white. And I was like, okay, it's like kind of a little, um, um, I'm here, I'm everywhere kind of uh, moment. And so came, I just came home and immediately wrote and recorded Spider, and that was the last thing for it. Everything else was done in, in sequence, you know. for a while it printed a couple thousand and then Josh finally heard it and they, they decided to take over and put it up so it ended up coming up on Ipecac and then uh, I went to tour Europe um, you know opening up for Queens went to South America opened for Gogo Bordello I, I must have played for two million people in, in that little cycle and I just with a cigar box in hand it was pretty cool oh, okay so is that in is that in Go ahead. I was going to say, is that intimidating to play, you know, that stripped down of a sound when you're playing in front of a crowd that's getting ready for Queens of the Stone Age? Um, well, it should be, but <laughs> so, uh, I felt a lot of power in, in, in the songs. I had to uh, invoke them, as it were, so I didn't really have time to think of anything else. Mm. You know, you can imagine you're singing about your lost love and, and, and just meditating on the difficult aspect of being alive and lost and joy and all that stuff so you can't really be worried about getting blown off the stage by you know five dudes with a bunch of apps you know just this, this power and, and I think there's power in the songs and I just had to get in the zone to deliver them properly which usually meant going there again emotionally so it was a little bit you know draining but people reacted really well you know they I probably thought I was fucking nuts and ballsy to get up there with a cigar box guitar with eight strings on and just go for it. No, but it was it was it was really uh, quite a great experience. You know, I found uh, uh, people really 
quieted down and focused and listened. It was nice. It's amazing. Well, it's a cool album, and I, I hope people will check it out. It's available uh, on Spotify to, to stream, and then also on iTunes, and it's at Amazon, along with a lot of the 11 albums. Everybody should go and check those out, especially the Spark album. Thank you. Sure. And then I also wanted to mention, while doing some mentions here, uh, you have a website. It's Ellen Johannes, A-L-A-I-N-J-O-H-A-N-N-E-S.com. Yes. And then also there's 11world.com that people can go. Yeah, which which, which i got to update because it's like, it's ancient. It's not even, I mean, I don't even know. <laughs> Just sitting there. Um but it's got some cool stuff, you know. I mean, we did that website back in the uh, early 2000s, and it's uh, possibly uh, outmoded. And but you know, it's got little clips and stuff like that. You know, I just haven't kept up on that. So let's get into. Well, actually, before we get into the album, uh, you mentioned before we were recording that you were doing some remixing. I, that leads me into like, what are your what's the plans for this year? Is um, are there new queens? Music is there new Queen's music to expect or anything like that? You want to give us a little uh, hint? Oh, or, definitely. Uh, yeah, definitely work, uh, worked on Queen stuff. Uh, for excellent. A bit, it's a little big. Um, I worked with uh, Blackbox Revelation from Belgium. Awesome. Uh, a great artist named Mana from uh, Finland. Um, Gentleman Ships, a great record I'm over there. Um, I just worked with a French band called Hi-Fi Club, and uh, right now I'm working with a really cool young band, uh, who's in the middle of changing their name, I don't really know what the new name is, and then Brody and I have been doing some uh, some stuff for her solo record, so I've been, I've been busy. Is that oh, and you just had the, the Mark Lanigan album that just came out. Oh yes, of course, how could I forget? <laughs> <laughs> oh yeah, just Mark Lanigan. Oh yeah, just more than that. No, I mean that was just such an incredible experience. I'm just, I guess, I'm too tired to remember everything. I, just, I already got tired from telling you what, what it, you know. But uh, yeah, Blues Funeral um, just came out on the seventh, and uh, I'm really proud of it. You know, we both are. We have a really great shorthand, um, great chemistry working together, and I, I worked on a bunch of tracks in um, Bubblegum. And I've been waiting to uh, be able to revisit that. You know, I'm really proud of it. You know, we we talked to um, Sean Smith a couple of weeks ago from Brad mm-hmm. and Satchel. Brad, and I was yeah. make, making a joke about how proficient he is with all the albums that he put out with all the various bands. But then I looked at Mark Lanigan's discography, and he's pretty much got an album or two a year with between him doing solo stuff and then the stuff with Isabel Campbell and then uh, yeah. various bands that he ends up guesting on with Queens and Gutter Twins and he might Both be with the busiest man in rock. I don't know. I don't know how he does it. Yeah, no, he's amazing. Uh, um, very prolific, you know, and that voice, of course, that voice just is insane. All right. Now we can get into the record. We got it's a little bit later than I anticipated. We're about forty-five <laughs> minutes into what I was hoping would be forty-five minutes uh, in total. But we'll we'll go a little bit um, into the record now. Uh, what actually? You can before, always edit uh, out all the funny stuff and just make you very serious. Shows. We might uh, we might do a right. two-parter. Is what we might end up doing. Cool. 
Be sure to tune in next week for part two as Tim, Jay, and Alan revisit the 1993 self-titled album by Eleven. For more information about this episode, visit digmeoutpodcast.com. Digmeoutpodcast.com